Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Tom Heitzman, Senior Account Executive at High Crush. Tom, how's it going today, buddy? Really good. Happy to be here. How are you doing? Doing great. It's Friday. Traveled all week. I was, like I was mentioning to you earlier, I mean, oil field, so you've probably experienced it too. I was in Midland on Tuesday, one day trip, Denver on Wednesday, one day trip. And then yesterday I was in a customer's office. And so, and here we are today at the Canon. Happy to record. Yeah. What about you, man? How's your week been? Oh, it's been good. A lot of a lot of windshield time around Houston. Yeah. <laughs> I think I drove a few hundred miles just in a few days. Nice. SB Top Golf last night, which was a fun event. But was it good? Yeah. No. Otherwise, just kind of ready for the weekend. And you know, as always, like you know, in this industry, it's going to be stuff that comes up. There's always emails and calls, but it's nice to be home and tackle those things from there instead of on the road or in the office. I hear you. So, how was it? the golf tournament last night? Was it pretty busy? It was. I think talking to the people that are organizing, I think they said they had 250 plus. So I don't know what the final number ended up being, but they had the entire, you know, main floor booked out and had a bunch of sponsors there. So it was, it was a good time. I didn't realize there was me that many people. Yeah. I knew about it, but I had traveled all week. And so I just, the wife was like, look, you've been gone. I've got, you know, a three month old and a three and a half year old. I'm going to jump out this window unless you stay home with me tonight. So I had to respect the wishes, which it was good because I hadn't seen my kids in a few days. Yeah, no total priorities there. It's you got to you got to find the balance, which is hard in the the sales lifestyle. But it is. It is. So you've been driving around Houston a lot. When you're driving, is it are you a podcaster, music listener? I mean, what are you listening to? Or do you like meditate while you're driving? I mean, I, I have the tendency to just zone out because Driving in Houston, the traffic is so bad. The drivers are so bad that I'm like, if I don't kind of turn my brain off, I'm probably going to get too mad. Yeah, yeah. So podcasts are probably my go-to. Okay. Um, you know, I listen to you guys. I might listen to Mark's. Do a lot of the sports ones like on the Ringer or okay. you know, whatever I can find out. So a lot of kind of mindless stuff to just kind of get you through the hour you might be spending fighting through traffic. So Yeah, yeah. So sports, what what's your favorite or what are you into? Uh, grew up playing soccer, still do play that on the weekends. So like to follow that. It's not as easy here, but yeah, uh, that's always kind of been my first love, but otherwise, you know, follow the NBA, follow NFL pretty close. Um, we grew up in Minneapolis, both my wife and I, so we're diehard Vikings fans. We've kind of adopted the Texans, but so yeah, that's during the season. That's usually how we spend most of our Sundays. And so, Nice. Are you a Dynamo's fan? Yeah, haven't been to a game. Like to kind of keep tabs on them, but uh, ah. that's definitely on my list to to do this year. And okay, so. I went to one last year, and it was probably one of the most exciting sporting events I'd been to in a while. Really? It's, yeah, it, that's like, good. We were close to the field. The energy was high. It was a packed stadium, and I don't know the teams, but there was a team that had come in, and there was a player again. I don't remember the name, but yeah, after the game, come to find out, there was a professional and who had kind of the. I don't know. You want maybe like the LeBron James in the soccer world. So like that's why it was packed. We were fortunate enough because my brother-in-law got tickets. So we went and we were close to the sidelines. And I mean, it was a blast. Like it was, I was dialed in the whole time. Like most sporting events, you sit there and you're kind of, you're watching the game. You're, you're BSing with your buddy, having a beer whatever. But I just found myself like really in tune with it. And it was a blast. Well, that's, that's the best thing too, is like, I, like, I like watching the NFL, but I, I have almost no interest to actually go to the stadium because yeah. I feel like I can get the best experience sitting at home, flipping between channels, yeah, 
pausing and fast forwarding when I want to, <laughs> instead of sitting in a stadium and barely being able to see. Like to me, even though I didn't play, going to live hockey games are probably the, one of the best sporting oh, events you can do. Again, it, for sure, it doesn't. You need to find a sport that it's like it's constant movement. You know, you're close to the to the action, to the field, the rink, whatever. And then that's that's what really draws you in. You know, yeah. there's certain sporting events every year where it's like, I might not watch college basketball all year, but then March Madness is. Like yeah. you can get into it. You it's know, exciting. It's something about the action, the atmosphere, the passion behind it. It just the World Cup, March Madness. Yeah. yeah, there's certain things. You know, whenever they happen, the whole world watches, and you just kind of get sucked in. Yeah. So, speaking of passion, so soccer fans have to be the most passionate fans in the world. They can be nuts. It's <laughs> insane. So afterwards, like leaving the stadium, it was cool. Everyone was excited because they won. There, there was a band like circling inside of the stadium, probably with like 30 <laughs> people deep, just like giving her. Yeah. Obviously had been drinking way too much. <laughs> but I mean, there were people dancing and screaming and like it was pretty intense. And then last fall, I went to Europe and it was right during the World Cup. I actually and I didn't I don't know how I timed this, but I we managed to time it this way. I was in London when England lost. To, oh, man. Was it Boz? No. I forget, but they lost yeah. like the semifinal game and we were there. And then we ended up going from there to France when France won. And we had just Man. got off the train, got to our hotel downtown, like close to the Eiffel Tower. And the streets were just like stupid packed. And yeah. so it was kind of nerve wracking because my wife was pregnant at the time. So we knew like, like what's going to happen. Yeah, is it like, going to be a there, riot? Yeah, we had no idea. And so we're like squeezing like the, the taxi drivers are driving insane. There's people everywhere, like horns honking and stuff. And it was just like, like I thought it was just going to like be a complete like monstrosity of a, of a like a just chaos, which it was. You always like get keyed up too because it, like, if you're yeah. walking with like with your family and so you're suddenly like if somebody bumps them, am I going to have to get in a fight? Like <laughs> yeah. what's what's going to go on right now? It's- yeah, like if I had to throw down in France, like I don't know what would have happened. But we ended up getting to our hotel room in time, watched the game on the TV and our hotel, the window was like basically you could see the streets. Yeah. And as soon as it happened, like it sounded like World War Three was outside. But oh, thank God they won because if they didn't, I would have been so scared for my life. Yeah. And it was, but like, talk about passion. Like, there was, there were bars that literally could hold maybe like 15 people, <laughs> like tiny bars. That had like 100. There. Yeah. Like, just crammed in there watching like a, maybe like a 28 inch TV. And there yeah. was people on the streets like watching. I was just like, that's insane. But yeah. it's so cool because it brings like everybody together. Oh, and that's like, you did like one of my major like bucket list items. And like, my wife and I have talked about for a while. I was like, I want to go to a World Cup. You know, and it's like, oh, we're insane. hopefully the U.S. is going to host maybe in like the 2026. Right. Um, which, you know, we're planning to still be in Houston, which it's it seems like this is a logical spot to host. Giant city, plenty of stadiums. Yeah. You know, warm weather. It'd be a good spot. But being able to be in a country when that's happening, just the mix of fans, that kind of activity, I think would be almost second to none as far as sporting events. So that's that's really cool. Well, it would make sense because Houston's so easy to travel in and out of. Yeah. So I feel like, I mean... Yeah, I don't know. From a tourist standpoint, it'd be great. So that would be neat. I would certainly love to go to a game. I couldn't imagine being in a stadium. That would just yeah. be unreal. No, we might have to try and go to a Dynamo game. And anybody listening, if you can, my pitch for soccer is always like it's everybody says it doesn't score enough. It's slow moving. But I always try and relate to it. It's like it. It's like grass version of hockey that if you can yeah. appreciate without the fighting. Yeah. Which <laughs> it's more like if you can fake injury. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's if you're if if you can appreciate in hockey the build up, the passing, how sometimes you might have to go backwards to go forwards. And it's really 
you got to maximize like a key moment to score. It's right. hockey doesn't always get high scoring, but it's a little tighter, more action packed. But it's it's like if you can appreciate that, it's more of a strategic end than just seeing a bunch of guys kind of jogging around a field all day. But it's yeah, it's not everybody's cup of tea, and that's fine. And I mean. Hey. It can be hard to, I just, like, personally, I have a hard time watching baseball. I think that's too slow moving. <laughs> yeah. Some people think that's sacrilege, but <laughs> just, again, Be personal. careful who you talk to in Houston because there's some serious Astros fans Yeah, which, there. again, I'll support them. Like, it's always e- easy to support a good team, too, when they yeah, win the yeah. World Series. But right. But that's another one where it's like, to me, that's a good event to go to because a ba- something about a baseball game is it's a little more casual. If you're going to sit there and have a hot dog, have a few beers, you might not even keep track of what's going on in the field and you'll check back in maybe in the sixth or seventh inning. <laughs> right. But it's otherwise you're just kind of hanging out and having a good time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One thing I wanted to ask, and this is just like a random, when I was in the airport traveling, I noticed more people now are wearing those Apple earbuds. AirPods. The like the cordless ones. Yeah. The AirPods. Is that just me or is that like becoming like a super trendy thing? It's like beyond trendy. It's like they first pot, like kind of released small amounts, I think like last year. And so you saw like, you'd have like major influencers and celebrities and people got them. Yeah. And at this point, they're completely sold out like everywhere. I know. You know I people tried are, to get some and I couldn't. Yeah, they're paying like you can get like the weird knockoff ones. Yeah. Which I'm always like, it'd probably work for three months. And then I, I would just think I'd lose them. Yeah. But, you know, again, they're everywhere. I mean, even walking in here, the people at the front desk, everybody <laughs> yeah. will have like I noticed, one that's in. That's why I said that. The lady you know, brought us in. It's here. just like a smaller, <laughs> it's like when people used to just wear Bluetooths all the time. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of a smaller version. So. Right. So I was listening to Wall Street Journal's podcast and they were talking about these, these buds and it was just so happy. And I was thinking about it and then they brought up yeah. apparently like the sales weren't that great up initially. And then all of a sudden it got trend, but now it's like a status symbol to where like, apparently yeah. if you wear them, you're considered to be like wealthy or well off. And it's just yeah. like, what have we come to? Yeah. Like there's, there's probably kids who, you know, don't work and their their parents are dishing them a bunch of money to get these fancy headphones. And they're going to school being like, look at me, everybody. Like, I know. It's, exactly. just- <laughs> it's like anything like latest cell phone latest whatever it's just it is like <laughs> yeah. a status thing and so it's yeah there's a, a whole section of like internet culture right now that's just kind of <laughs> making fun of that that it's you know if you you got it you can only be really wealthy to afford them <laughs> so yeah yeah people get an inflated ego yes oh big time speaking of apple did you hear about them and goldman sachs teaming up to do a virtual no. credit card on like iphones no i mean i know like apple pay and they've been try they try and branch out into anything and yeah you know they're big enough that usually they can end up being successful but no i hadn't i hadn't heard that yeah just another way to uh put you know our the consumers in more debt because apparently <laughs> you'll be able to take out loans with it then like if you you can use my it's like a credit card right so you use it you know say you want to buy some fancy headphones kid goes on there and next thing you know his dad's getting a bill for these headphones that he's got to pay for but yeah so it's have just you, like have you guys run into that yet like as far as like your kid accidentally buying something. No, I never understood how to how it would happen, <laughs> and it's happened now to us like twice in a few months. Like, oh no, my like four, on your iPad or something? Yeah, well, I mean, like we usually use like an Xbox to do most of our entertainment. It'll okay. have like Hulu, Netflix, everything just right through there. Yeah, yeah. And so you'll have the controller, and you know, like our kids are plenty good at trying to like navigate around and. You know, if you're on like Amazon Prime, it's linked to our account. And yeah. You can, you can rent movies, you can buy movies. And like, <laughs> one time we were even, those. we were like right there with him. And, but we were just kind of like, oh, yeah, you can pick what you want. And he like, we suddenly get a notification on our phone that we just bought like a $20 movie. We're like, what? <laughs> 
We're like, what are you doing? Like, you can't do that. You just like tell us, talk to us. You can't just magically start pushing buttons. So yeah, that's partially on us, but also like our kids know what's going on and they know what they should and shouldn't do. So it's, we'll, we'll share the blame on that one. And that's a tough thing. Like, what do you do? I guess what would happen if all of a sudden your kid, say for like an hour was on there and you were busy doing something and racked up, say like a $2,000 bill. Like, could you then go back and say, look, that was a mistake. Like, how would we you did get it refunded. They, oh, they, no, they typically did? like, and we, it was like a digital copy and they said, usually we try not to, but we actually like, we own the movie already. And like, they were pretty understanding. I think within some reason they got okay. a, there's certain things where like, well, we can't do much if maybe a bunch of time has passed, but right. Or if it's like a common, like once a week, you're like, Hey, I bought this movie, but I didn't right. You know? Yeah. That's kind of like the whole, like you're at a restaurant somebody's like, Oh, I didn't like this, but they ate all of it. And it's yeah, kind of yeah. like, yeah, well, I, I can't give you a refund on something that's not even existing anymore. Cause, <laughs> cause right. you ate it. But that's, it, that's good to know though. Cause I mean, even stuff like Amazon, like I've ordered stuff and it didn't, or I thought it didn't come. Yeah. And then I'd call it, hey, look, you know, it didn't come, blah, blah, blah. Well, it was delayed or whatever the case was. Well, they ended up sending me one, like, no questions asked. So it's like, it's almost like it's it's not worth the fight. And for them, from a business standpoint, yeah. it's worth it just like, hey, keep these customers satisfied because they're spending, you know, buku money anyways. Yeah. I mean, their reach is so giant that I, I they probably could go the opposite approach. And yeah, like, if we lose you as a customer, who cares? Because we have 2 billion other people. Sure. But it's, I think it's good business that they're, they're, their return policies, how they handle all that, it seems pretty customer friendly, which I think is just long term. It's it's easier to do business, and that's how yeah. they magically are in your kitchen and Alexa, and they're in your phone, and you, you <laughs> order everywhere. You order things that show up before you even think about it. But right, you know, technology's crazy. I mean, we're us personally, like even being millennial parents, are like kind of gone the opposite, where we almost never post anything. Okay, you know, like I Facebook, we just kind of scroll through. We don't put pictures of our kids up because we just kind of. I think we still are underestimating the internet as a culture. Yeah. You know, like as a society. And it's, you know, we just don't want to make the choice for them yet. We're like, at some point, they'll be online. They'll have their own profiles. Yeah. Will they have wanted a picture of them in a swimsuit when they were three floating around the internet forever? How much is going to be permanent and not? Like, yeah. I, it's still pretty young when you it think is. about like, we've grown up with it. Yeah. You know, like, and so it's kind of normal, but. You know, I didn't have a cell phone till late in high school. Right. That's weird now if people don't have cell phones even earlier. So it's just. So what are your, what are your, that's funny you bring that up. So what are your thoughts on when parents make their kids a profile on Instagram that they don't, that the parents control, but the kids don't. And they're posting like, for instance, someone like their daughter in a bathtub when she's three with her nipples out. Yeah, like, I mean, like, again, it's like, I know it's this like, is the third rail, but it's like so real, right? It happens no, all the time. Yeah, and that's where it just, again, we made the personal choice there. It's like, we don't, we're just big believers that like, if it ever makes it to the internet, it's there forever. Yeah. Even if you try and delete it, even if you try and make oh, something yeah. private, it's there somehow and it's accessible somehow. Yeah. And so we just personally are like, we, we're not going to go there. It just seems a little, a little risky, but at the same time, the same reasons it's so popular is because there is so much that can be good. You can live hundreds or thousands of miles from family. And that might be the only way you really are communicating or keeping in touch or showing pictures. And so again, like I, I do understand that. And I think it's, you know, it's very, I'm very hands off with like most things where it's like, whatever you think is going to be the best choice for you guys go for it. You know, who am I to say what you should or shouldn't be doing in like your personal life, but right. Anything of a good thing, if you abuse it, it's a bad thing. Right. So I can respect your approach on that. Let's move ahead here. 
Before we get going, let's talk about reviews. So everyone out there, if you wouldn't mind, please take a quick break and support the show. Please subscribe and do me a huge favor and just take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. You can even send me something on LinkedIn. Just let me know, you know, any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. So if you would, please. I wanted to take a moment to read a few reviews of the week. This one was from M. Bilberry. That's my buddy Matt out there. Appreciate the support. He said, really enjoyed the podcast. Looking forward to it it growing and what the future holds. The oil and gas industry needed this type of media. Thank you for that. We got another one here from C. Trevor 23 out of the USA. Says, Justin does a great job making oil and gas conversation interesting, regardless of how long you've been in the business. As someone transitioning into the industry, I find the interviews from Justin and the rest of the OGGN podcast family are vital in my preparation for live customer interaction. See, Trevor, that's I'm you know, and I'm so happy to hear that because there's so many young people getting into the industry. And if we can help educate and kind of help prepare the, you know, what you're getting into and the culture and just the type of people you're gonna be dealing with, that's a huge win. And so Feel free to ever hit me up on LinkedIn and if you want to, if you have any other questions or, you know, if you're in Houston, you want to grab a coffee, I'd love to meet with you, bud. Let's go with one more here from Raw19. That's my buddy Ross, actually. He was on the last episode. He says, always making things enjoyable to listen to. Good for folks in the patch and for those who are not. Keep up the good work. Thanks again for all the great reviews. And yeah, it's just keep them coming. That just helps us plan our business and make everything better for everybody. So Tom, I've got a couple questions for you. How does a guy go from working at Barcelona Wine Bar and Restaurant in Connecticut to being one of the top sales professionals and selling frac sand in the busiest oil play in the world, which is the Permian? Tell us a story, buddy. <laughs> yeah, well, and appreciate the ego boost saying one of the top sales professionals. Hey, don't worry. We'll uh, squeeze you through the door on your way out. Don't yeah, worry. Well, I mean, the ego is getting pretty big. But yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm glad I knew you before you really blew up because it's, you know, obviously it's it's only up from here, red carpets, everything like that. Yeah, so, <laughs> right. So, no, I mean, like, like I said, I... I grew up in Minneapolis, really no background in oil and gas at all. You know, I double majored in marketing and finance. I bounced around really between a couple of colleges trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I always skewed towards business. I love marketing and sales and just really interfacing with people and figuring out what, what matters to them and how do I bring value. And so I would, I'd always worked in restaurants. I had worked, you know, really two, three jobs at a time while going to school. You know, we got married young, became parents young. So it was always a very practical, just kind of hardworking mindset, I mm-hmm. guess. And so it was always like, what can we do? How can we get further? And we landed in Connecticut, really just looking to kind of branch out of the Midwest. We wanted to be closer to some family. So we moved there and, you know, needed to make money. So, you know, that, that Spanish restaurant was the first one that hired me, did that part-time while also working full-time at Uniman, which was a, a sand and mineral company. And again, I really just took the job because it was the first thing that offered, you know, I'm which 20, is pretty typical, right? Yeah. First you know, I'm 23 years you, old. You know, we had just moved to a new part of the country with no jobs. So it's like, I, we need something to do. And I get in and I figure I'm going to do this for like a year. You know, like I, I know nothing about sand. I know nothing about oil and gas. Like, well, what is this possibly going to lead to? And, you know, so I'm doing that, working in a restaurant part-time too, you know, just doing what you do when you're young, trying to meet ends meet. Yeah. And you know, next thing you know, a couple of years in, they're like, would you want to move down to Houston? And at first I'm like, absolutely no. <laughs> and so why were you, why did you right away say no? I, for some reason we were just like, I, I don't know if we want to be in Texas. Do we want to relocate for a job? Like it just, again, we 
young family. Like, is this the way we want to go? Sure. But we also were always looking for kind of an opportunity to better ourselves and further along. And so I had some people I trusted kind of get in my ear saying, you should really think about it, at least go down and meet the team, you know, see the area. And so I came down kind of on a visit and more or less kind of fell in love. I did a couple nights here and just in the airport called my wife and I'm like, all the work aside seemed good. Yeah. The money would be what we need. It's big city right next to suburbia. So it's everything we'd really we're used to what we're looking for. And she's mm-hmm. like, okay, so we're moving to Houston. I was like, I, th- I think so. But yeah. <laughs> so we, we went into it very much together that, you know, if it's not going to work for us, all of us, it's not just a me move. It has to be for all of us. And yeah, it just seemed to make sense. And now we've been here four years and, you know, we've loved it. You know, we really found a home here, which has been great. So cool. Good yeah. for you. And then, so, but you moved here that wasn't with high crush, was it? No, yeah. So that was with back when I was at Uniman, which Uniman, uh, right. is now Cobia. They went through that merger with Fairmont okay. last year. So, but yeah, so I moved down there with them and then I joined High Crush in October, which again, both of them are sand companies, okay. uh, big presence in oil and gas. It's just kind of the opportunity that, again, I've always been on the supply chain side, account management, and wanted to get in and dive into sales, get that hands on outside sales experience, try and move myself in a way that I could really impact strategy, impact the value I'm bringing. So it's, it just kind of, it all lined up at the right time. Cool. Yeah. So for the listeners out there who might not be familiar with high crush or even what sand is, can yeah. you briefly describe what it is and maybe the difference between sand and propent? Cause for me yeah. person, I'm a drilling guy. So even this would be something I can learn from as well. So yeah, yeah if you don't mind explaining what that is. Yeah. Def- so yeah, sand is, is propent. Um, okay. Really anything that when you are, completing a well when you're actually fracturing open the you know the shale down there is whatever holds it open is going to be profit okay. uh, that could be ceramic could be resin different types of sand as far as sizing and uh, where you're actually getting it which again it's a that's a whole rabbit hole discussion but yeah but yeah so it is profit you know high crush we're, we're one of the larger sand providers the last mile logistics companies in the country we have four mines in wisconsin that are your traditional northern white mines okay. so that's 2040 all the way through 100 mesh and then we actually were the first company to open up one of the mines in the permian as far as like cool. a regional mine that is that's kind of like the buzz terms you've been hearing so ah, okay. so we have two mines out there now too so between all six we're at about like 17 million tons a year of capacity wow and then we are you know really the only 100 percent kind of mine to blender fully integrated company as far as if you're familiar with a containerized or box pad solution silos trucking and management of the sand as well as actually producing it we're the one that actually can offer almost every different solution out there so it's we do have a pretty you know good setup that i I like being a part of and it's it's been exciting you know just to again get out there and you know, hit the ground running sales wise. Yeah. So explain how does it work? So when you say, so you have a mine in West Texas, is that right? Correct. Yeah. So does that mean there's just like a bunch of sand in the ground and then you go and scoop it up? Like, and I'm being very like loose, yeah. not being very technical. No, no, that's, that's is so that it's, how it works. And then how does it go from there into like, say the bag or like, however you guys sell it, which I, not the bad bag, yeah. you're selling in tons of bulk, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. And so, and we are, for some reason, the sand part of this business is like the only one that actually talks in tons instead of pounds. So it always kind of okay. confuses people, but right. you know, traditionally people, if you're mining like up in the Midwest, like it's, it's a much more intensive process as far as how far you're having to go down into the earth, they actually get it. While in West Texas, it, most of the mines you're seeing what they're calling like dune sand, which is in really in that no man's land of in between the Midland and Delaware basins. When you're driving through 
it was just brush and sand just for miles and miles. And that's where they kind of figured out if you can kind of get past like the overburden, all like the greenery and organics on top, there was actual usable sand under there. So most of it is pretty surface or near surface level. So that's one thing that's pretty different. In the Permian in general, hunter mesh has kind of become the flavor of the day, or at least where the future is going. It's probably about 60% of what's being used. And what they've seen is the hunter mesh that they're pulling out of the ground in West Texas is pretty comparable to what you might be getting out of like a Northern White product. Interesting. And that's if you really, if you go back probably two, three years when all that kind of kicked off, somebody figured out you could mine the sand out there. You essentially were just cutting out the biggest part of the equation logistically, which is the railroad. Of course. That's the only way. So that was the the immediate cost savings, the immediate thing that kind of turned people onto it and just kind of turned into a gold rush as far as people just opening up mines left and right. You know, I think right now, like the count out there, there's might be 23 mines in the Permian alone. Okay. How many companies across the board own these mines? Do you even know? It's probably in a 10 to 15 range. A lot of companies have two. Okay. Uh, at least the bigger players. So there's, they can vary in size, but I mean, all the major sand players are at this point got into it because it was a way to compete. But I mean, that alone, the whole industry is kind of facing a giant oversupply and saturation where if you're going across the board, what they're still going to add this year, there's about 277 million tons of nameplate capacity across the country. The whole sand usage is estimated to be about between 105 and 110 million. Wow. So there's obviously things are going to get idled. There's ones that may never hit nameplate capacity because that's... What do you, what do you mean by nameplate? So if, you're, if you build a mine and you're like, we can produce 3 million tons a year, that's really your best case scenario. Your operations never have a hitch. Everything you're digging out of the ground is going perfectly to plan, which like anything else, when you're dealing with mother nature, anything under the ground, it's, it's going to be a mixed bag. You might think you're going to get more of one product and you end up with more of another. So uh, okay. that's, it's really your hypothetical best case scenario would probably be nameplate capacity. Okay. Which, cool. you know, you just got to be realistic. It's probably going to come down. I heard a number recently that maybe 50% will actually be effectively utilized of that 277. Hmm. So actually usable mind doesn't go idled. So is that better or worse than what you would have thought? It's worse than I thought as far as being utilized. But when, again, when you're thinking about the demand, if demand's only say 109, you're still, if you're doing half of 277, it's, there's still a pretty big delta in there of sand that's not getting used. Right. So that's that's whatever is kind of keeping, I think, most sand companies kind of up at night is most people have kind of shifted to regional mines. The Permian's almost entirely dominated by it at this point. The Midcon, the whole Oklahoma area, is they have about five mines, I think, right now with more Cummings. There's some in the Eagleford, some in the Haynesville. So it's it's kind of starting to get into all those other basins somewhere like okay. the Bach and the Rockies, the Northeast, you hear whispers, but it doesn't seem it's going to hold up as much, but there's just only so many places that will still use what you would call those Northern white products. Okay. Um, so it's, where do you find a home for them? How can you do it cost effectively? How do you do it logistically efficiently? And so it's, it's always kind of a battle of how do you do it cheaply, efficiently, and still giving them hopefully surety a supply and you know, not having issues since it is, it is a commodity kind of in the oil field. Right. So do most operators, and I heard this at a, an AEDE conference, it was a topic of discussion about direct sourcing. And I know before, if I remember correctly, or historically, 
the pumpers would buy the sand and then sell it to the operators. But during the downturn, was there sort of a shift that a lot of the operators were then direct sourcing their commodities such as sand? Yeah. And that's been one of my, I think one of the big turning points of what you can look at is in that last downturn, everybody really had to take a hard look in the mirror when you looked at how drastic the price in oils dropped and just the activity. It's It forced every company to pull back the curtains, look at their costs, look at their really supply chains. Like the, the supply chain groups now at EMPs are kind of the, not golden boys, but at least the pressure's on them. It's turned to them to kind of make sure that their operations are hopefully as efficient as possible. So they started looking at that. Like, what if we direct source? You know, how do, what does that mean? Like, what are we gaining back in what would have just been lost margin for a service company? Mm-hmm. And so over the past couple of years, I think my mindset is that the operators are kind of looking for what is our best case scenario? What's our best, when we want to get into manufacturing mode, what is our full speed ahead model? Is it going to be a direct source? Is it going to be, you know, what kind of last mile preferences are we going to use? What kind of sand are we using? What kind of well designs? Yeah. So I think they've been using this, you know, first, just how do we save money? And then now, what do we do that when pricing is good, we can really maximize it? And what do we do when pricing is bad to insulate ourselves? Because I, I don't think we're going to see giant swings in oil pricing, you know, maybe in that $5 range. If we can float in the 50s, I think everybody would be pretty happy. But we're not going to magically turn into like $90 oil and then drop back down to 30 or anything like in, that we saw over the past few years. So, right. so I think it, yeah, that direct sourcing thing at first was you know, a very hot topic. It was very done in whispers, I think. People, service companies had done it one way for a long time. So it was obviously a, a shift just in how people have been doing business. But I think like most people know, if EMPs, they kind of have the keys to this whole thing. So if they want to go a route, most of us just have to kind of fall in line and, and try and keep up. So, right. so it's been interesting to see, you know, who pairs up with who, which, you know, which ones have decided to direct source or not. But it's, it all really depends on what their mode is and what matters to them. Like um, yeah. Same thing kind of goes back to the the sand type where some will just want the cheapest commodities, the cheapest, you know, iron, the cheapest, you know, horsepower, whatever they can get. And some still value paying more for like a higher quality, you know, product, whether that's the service, the iron, whatever it is. So it, it, each operator, I think, is different on what matters to them, what they care about in the, the short term and long term and and so that's why there's still no cookie cutter answer, I guess, as far as what might work. Because some might still pump exclusively Northern White because they view the investment mm-hmm. that, that'll pay off. And some think, you know, really, I'm looking at what my IP will be. We might refract this thing in a year anyway. And we're caring about how we can make our revenues and our costs look every three months. So right. it's, that's kind of how things have shifted where people got so cost conscious it that was part of the big shift to like those regional products too. Makes sense. So that kind of brings me to two different questions that I have. The first one is if a company was established and had long-term plans in the Permian or whatever basin that they're operating in, would they, or I don't even know what might even happen. Would it, would it be of interest to them to actually buy their own mine and do this all themselves? And then my other question is, when you're talking about these different grades of sand, is it literally like you can take it from the ground and put it down whole, or do you have to grind it and size it? Or I, was, I know there are two different questions, but yeah. they were on the top of my head, so I didn't want to forget to ask them. Yep. No. In general, you do have to you do have to do something to the sand. There's there's not a lot that 
comes down to that usually is a washing process and a drying process. Um, okay. Again, part of it's for the purity, but also part of going through that is also where you go through the, the sieving, you know, as far as getting the sizing. So again, if you're kind of scooping up a general pile of sand, like out of the earth, you're naturally going to get some almost of each grade, 20, 40, 30, 50, 40, 70, 100 mesh, depending on where you are and the geology, you might get more of one, but you can't really pick and choose how the earth kind of deposited the sand. I so, so it sieves out so you can get what they call kind of an API, API standard of where like 90% of the sand is falling, sizing, kind of just going through a sieve instead of one you would do in like a river for gold. It's just yeah. giant screen houses that, you know, are in like a giant warehouse. Wow. So that that's the main thing is doing that. And then a lot of it's transported by rail car, by truck and kind of more bulk style. And so that's kind of the main process going through there. And as as far as kind of tying back to the other question with would they ever want to invest in mines, it's right now I don't there's you've seen some kind of go that route, maybe some form of investment. I'll, I think a lot of times they view it as the risk profile, like it is investing the money for surety of supply and something long term makes sense. Like, do we want to own the risk? You know, I guess it's, yeah. like, it's probably similar with other parts of the oil field is a lot of companies, I'm sure, have the financials that they could do it, but it's just they would rather pay somebody so it's not on their plate for the risk. So I, I think they could. It just it, so far it doesn't seem that the way they're going. They might look into strategic partnerships, but right. but again, right now you're, I guess you'd say there's no pain in the market when you're so oversupplied. When pricing kind of is where it is, there's not a lot of motivation or pain for somebody to make a drastic move. You know, sure. Kind of like we're we're not uncomfortable. We can usually get whatever kind of commodity or service or anything we need right now since horsepower is oversupplied sand is oversupplied almost every part of the oil field seems oversupplied so (laughs) they're kind of like well if i run into an issue with supplier a i have b through z basically ready and willing to get my business so no kidding based off the current rig count how long would you say or are there any numbers out there like how many years or how long it would take until those mines are completely depleted? I mean, is that a worry at this point? No, no. I mean, most, it depends on every sand company. I mean, a lot of them have, you know, what they'll kind of tout on their website is what their reserves are. And some of these mines have reserves that are 15, 30, 50, 80 years, you know, as far as depending how much land they got. And that's what they did it really on their first assessment with all their geology is if we buy this patch of land, we buy however many square acres is, like we if we can produce three million tons a year, how many years are we really sitting on? So right now that doesn't seem to be too much of an issue. And again, since we're over so oversupplied, nobody's thinking about it right now. But but yeah, that's typically not really on the radar right now since it's so long term. Okay. The question as an aside more on like this frac specific, but like how many tons are you guys or what are operators pumping per frac job? Let's say just a typical wolf camp you know, two, yeah. two mile ladder, like how much sand are you talking when they do that? Yeah. And again, it's, I wish I had like a real pure cookie cutter, but it can definitely vary by, you know, what they might be putting in per foot and okay. uh, their stage counts, how many types of sand, but so it varies pretty significantly. It, it, it definitely can. I mean, I've seen, I've seen an average, you're probably floating maybe about like eight to 12,000 tons in a well. You might see some, it's not weird. Somebody's going to pump five or 6,000. You've seen especially over the past couple of years, people were doing longer laterals, more stages, more sand per foot, where somebody would do a job that was 15, 20, 30,000 tons of sand. Again, those are kind of, 
they get to be more anomalies. Okay. Um, and right now, at least a lot of the data showing people have kind of capped out. You know, there was a year or two where people are just pushing the limit. They're just doing longer laterals, more stages, yeah, more sand. And now they, it seems like at least in the Permian, they've kind of figured out maybe this is our magic number. Like more sand is not going to mean more return. So I think they've started to kind of find a sweet spot. So we're not going to see some giant push of increases, I okay. guess. But again, the kind of short answer is every single well is different since there's no right. one thing depending on their design and what matters to them downhole. So Interesting. Okay, cool. Tom, has there been any advancements or do you see any advancements coming down the pipeline for Fraxan technology? Yeah, well, I mean, people are always trying to look at what might work better downhole. Again, people have tried ceramics and resins and you know all sorts of different fluid mixtures to, to what might work in different different layers of the shales, different pressures. There's nothing that's kind of revolutionary as far as maybe the sand itself, but the, the what they've been using, the volumes and the grades has definitely been changing. If you go back to like 2014, yeah, I, I first kind of got into this probably in 13. And again, just seeing the change of... I don't even want to use the word like ignorance, but like how, how people approach things back then is just drastically changed in just a few years. Okay. Um, From an engineering standpoint? Just or? almost like the industry in general, like how it's treating it. I mean, you could look back before that downturn, people were just bleeding money. You know, they never <laughs> yeah. thought it like any, they would pay whatever it took, commodity, horsepower, anything like it just is like blank checks across the board. You know, people were focused on Again, this is on the completion side. They're looking at rig count, even though that doesn't really tie into the completions one for one. They were, again, just not, didn't have a lot of knowledge on what they're actually putting down hole with the sand and what it, it took to to get there. I mean, the, the supply chain was kind of a mess, not cost effective at all. But you look at probably, so in 2014, probably 75% was Northern White product you know, okay. coming from those Minnesota and Wisconsin mines. So yeah, back then probably 60% of sand use was in that 2040 or 3050 area, you know, the coarse products. So and not only was gotcha. three-fourths of it coming from the Midwest or those mines, but most of it was on the coarse end. And then you flip it to the day and it's probably about 20% is in that coarse mesh. And okay. again, 60 or 70% is what you call like a regional sand. So it's not coming. So it's almost completely, you know, done a 180 from what the demand was four years ago. Okay. So when you think about it from, you know, poor little sand suppliers, they were making investments in how they're approaching their business four or five years ago and pitching to their board. Like, here's what the market's saying. Here's what we got to do. Here's what we got to invest in. And within two or three years, the market basically said, no, like (laughs) we want the total opposite. So having to pivot that is, that's been pretty crazy to see. You know, people have had to, again, how do you get, how do you squeeze everything in your supply chain model. You know, you got to, if you're shipping from a plant, it's got to be on the most optimal railroad you can possibly do. You have to have good storage and costs on the other end. You better be set up where you're close to strategic customers as far as well sites, because trucking is the other giant portion of this business too. Most it's, how do you get that sand to the location? Right. Uh, it's one of the most expensive dynamics. So it's, it's no longer four or five years ago where it's just, do you have sand? Get it to me. I don't care what it costs. Right. You know, now it's, a couple dollars matters, you know, per ton. Of so. course. So there's a few questions I have, and I'm sure the listeners have them too. So the first one is the beach that you have in your backyard. Is that sand that you mined in 
in West Texas or and what kind of what grade is that and how do we get some for yeah, our very, beaches in yeah, our backyard? Very beautiful, very fine mesh. It comes with the palm trees. It's a great setup. <laughs> nice. uh, okay, perfect. It's a, it's a nice side business, kind of black market stuff. So. Uh, no, but, but I mean, it's if it, you were to actually like <laughs> say, like if someone said Tom, like say a customer is like, I want three tons of sand for my backyard. Which grade would I need? What would it be? And again, it's a, this kind of this cliche answer. It all depends on what you're using it for. <laughs> but uh, tanning and, and yeah, I mean, some people sand castles. I mean, that's and like we, you know, the big focus is always oil and gas. But sand is actually one of the most used commodities on the planet. Okay, really, I, I think that. just after water, it might be as far as what we use the most of. No way. Um, it's going into glass. It's going into construction. You know, cement. It goes into electronics. So it's. I probably, I know way too much about sand. I'll just come right out and say that. that that's what happens when you spend yeah. half a decade, I guess, doing Do you this. have a nice sandbox or something at your house? Actually, no. That's, no? Probably, okay. a, that's probably a cardinal <laughs> sin or a you know, red flag. But, um, okay. but no, so I mean, there's so many uses for it that like in a lot of these sand companies out there, they, they serve other industries. Cool. Uh, oil and gas is kind of, you could say sexier. It's always been high profit. It's just high volatility. But yeah. it's not weird for sand companies to sell like Miller Coors because they have they got to make all their bottles. They sell okay. to glass manufacturers, and so it's it is kind of everywhere. It's one of those things that it we're these giant like billion dollar industry over here that almost nobody notices. Right. Again, I think it's really it ties into this entire oil and gas thing. Is like you and I are on almost completely different ends of the spectrum as far as how we serve it, but we're still connected to it somehow. And of course, unless you're really one or two layers removed, you're not that connected. You know, I kind of yep. can understand the high, you know, the horsepower market with service companies and a little bit with that. But once you start getting into the actual drilling, drill bits, tools, anything offshore, it starts to like just go over my head. So that, that yeah. always amazes me about this industry is it's so giant right. and people are so specialized in ways that can almost never overlap, even though we still somehow are all connected to this, this oil price and the, you know, the supply and demand in the long term. So that's true. One quick question before we're getting close to our time here. Yeah. When you're mining it, is there a process in which you reclaim the land or does once it's dug up, is it just left there as a big hole or? No, most at this point, sand companies approach it very sustainably. Okay. Uh, what they try and look at is, again, when you're actually starting a mine, you have to take off a lot of that topsoil, the overburden, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And so they try to replace that after, or they try and when a site's going to be done, they've obviously taken out anything that's theirs equipment wise, clean it up environmentally. If there was any form of things that go into manufacturing and then they might turn it into like a man-made lake or something like that, that they oh, wow. And a lot of them are really trying to be stewards in these communities because it's usually more or less small town areas. Yeah. Provides a lot of jobs in the short term. You know, investing in some of the, whether it's, you know, hunting programs or reforestation programs or things like that to try and, again, be more of a better steward to area that you're not just literally digging a giant hole in the earth and then walking away. Good. And, yeah. and I love hearing that. And in, in the very first episode, I, I mentioned that I wanted to help expose this type of stuff. And so it's good that companies like yourselves and everyone else are making a, a big effort from the environmental standpoint to make sure that the land is is being reclaimed and, and hopefully making it equal or better than it was when you first entered into yeah. the, to the no, project. Exactly. So, Tom, if you're not out selling sand... What are you doing? And if you know, or if you're a big restaurant guy, obviously you worked in the restaurant industry. Is there any one of your favorites, or can you point people in the right direction that want to go to a great restaurant here in Houston? Yeah, I mean, food is is the other passion project. I guess I always love that. Still have a soft place in my heart for restaurants, and like my father in law is a chef. We've always 
we always spitball them together about what kind of restaurant we could open and you know just to, to wax poetic it's one of those things that i think it's always great experience if you can work in a restaurant going up and it's kind of that you get in you put your head down you work hard and it, it's that kind of thing that translates pretty well to oil and gas i think it's just it's people trying to get a job done you know yeah. and do it high well and so i mean Around Houston, it's kind of a food mecca. I live on the north side, and Corkscrew Barbecue's up there. It's okay. in Old Town Spring. One of the best barbecues I've ever had in my life. It's If you go on a Saturday, you better get there like an hour early, because they just go till they sell out, but it is 100% worth it. So how much commission are they giving you to put that plug in? Oh, yeah, like 50%. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and free barbecue for, for life. For That's life, great. yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of writing that into reality, I hope. But, I mean, anytime I can find good sushi, which is in a lot of places... Oh, yeah. um, found a i think they've been on food network but a jamaican place called cool runnings i went ah. to they had i think a food truck around and they have a restaurant down in belfort they're really good but yeah anything anything good food find some good wine or you know whiskey or beer i'm down so nice well i know you and, and we're getting close here but uh, you mentioned about maybe starting your own podcast around food so whenever you start it and yeah. i'm holding you to it <laughs> we're gonna mention it so that people can follow your food podcast so yeah no maybe i need the accountability so we'll, we'll have to work on that but yeah that'd okay. be fun to do yeah you bet that's good well we're getting close again here but i did want to talk about our our podcast sponsor giveaway so I'm sure you've heard me talk about Tendeka. They're known for their innovation and, com- and advanced completions and production optimization. And speaking of innovation, how cool is this? A mini portable projector. It's a goody mini LED projector, perfect for home theater, boardroom, office, and pocket video. For a chance to win, click the link in the show notes and we'll announce the lucky winners as they come in. The most recent winner is Mr. Jeff Stafford. He's an operations chief at Denbury Resource. Congrats, Jeff. You have a sexy title, man. I want to be a chief one day, so yeah, let me know. that's a pretty good title. Yeah, yeah. So a big congrats there. Let's talk a little bit about some events. We've recently launched the Oil & Gas Legal Risk podcast. So if you could, please take a moment to rate and review to help Sarah out. That'd be much appreciated. And then if you can, if you well, if you haven't yet, but uh, take a listen to the rest of the Oil & Gas Global Network podcast. And if you could, leave a review. So, you know, being in oil and gas, we love happy hours and we're actually looking for a sponsor in the Dallas Fort Worth area. So if you, any of you folks up there want to get some name recognition, help build your brand and support a happy hour, hit us up and we'd be happy to get you lined out. We're going to be launching a Midland happy hour in the very near future. So stay tuned on the next episodes for more details and the Houston Super Happy Hour. So if you're interested in one of the best oil field happy hours in Houston, come hang out with me and the OGGN group every last Tuesday of the month held at the Cannon. Come out, enjoy a cold beer from our sponsor Carbog and some food from HEB and the opportunity to network and you know hang out with other professionals in oil and gas. Visit www.oilandgasglobalnetwork.com front slash events for more details. We'll make sure we plug that into the show notes. Tom. If people want to get to know you or more about High Crush, how can they reach out? Are you an Instagram guy or are you a LinkedIn? What do you do, bud? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn would be great. You know, again, if you ever, anybody that wants to talk more about the exciting world of sand, trucking, last mile, that whole thing, again, touching the completions, always happy to, to have the conversation and, and just kind of nerd out about it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if they can com- comment through you, whether it's through the reviews or reach out, then you, I'm more than happy to take anything you can funnel my way. Cool. But yeah, again, it's it's a weird, interesting niche topic. You know, by no means it's, you know, there's a big battle inside the, the sand world as far as 
what stand type is better and where to get in all the what strategy to go for but at the end of the day it's everything matters on what matters to an operator and there's no one size fits all some people will get you know better results with like a northern white traditional product sometimes regional is the best fit and i think that's the the end of the day is what is a company's strategic goals and how can we line up? And you know, and that's always a fun discussion to have. But, but cool. yeah, by all means, anybody that wants to have the conversation, come by. And you know, you reminded me with the the ad, like we're actually going to sponsor our SBE happy hour at a Carbach next month on the twenty first, awesome. so March twenty first. Feel free to kind of. I'm sure that'll start going around LinkedIn if you okay. Are if, connected you have, to SBE. if you have a link, send it to me, and we'll put it in the show yep. notes for everybody. Yep. No, definitely. So it'd be great to get some people out there and and meet them in person. So. Yeah, fantastic. We'll also put your your link into the show notes for your LinkedIn. That way if people want to add you and have any questions, you know, obviously it it certainly appreciate you being open-hearted enough to talk to anyone who's interested. So again, thanks again. And everyone out there listening, that's a wrap. And always remember oil and gas onshore, providing energy for the world through innovation, one well at a time. Signing out. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com.